0: What wisdom is there for us as white Christians in these troubled, violent times of pandemics and racial capitalism and the beauty of resistance? I'm Reverend Ann Dunlap, pronouns she, her, hers. I'm a United Church of Christ minister, and I'm the faith organizing coordinator for Showing Up for Racial Justice, or SURGE. I live in the place currently called Buffalo, New York, here in the homelands of the Haudenosaunee and Erie peoples. This podcast is a project of Surge Faith and is particularly designed for white Christians, white Christians talking to other white Christians about race and white supremacy. We believe white Christians like us, like me, have a responsibility to commit ourselves to resisting white supremacy, to speaking up and showing up and disrupting white supremacy where we find it, including in our own Christian tradition. And we do this work remembering we are building up a new world. This live recording of Dr. Vincent Harding's song for the Freedom Movement is of a multiracial movement choir practice in Denver, Colorado, in December of 2014, being led by Minister Daryl J. Walker. We are deeply grateful to the Freeney Harding family for letting us use the song for this podcast. The word is resistance. How's everybody holding up out there? If you're able to, safely, take a moment. Take a moment to just pause and check in with yourself. How are you doing in there? How's your breath? How's your heart? How's your belly? Is there anything beautiful around you? Could there be? What's hurting? What needs some healing? A little balm, a hand held, someone just to see you. I don't know about where you are, but here in New York state, almost all of the COVID restrictions were lifted recently. I personally am still feeling super cautious though, and, and wonder if, quote, going back to normal, as if that normal wasn't already a serious problem, I'm wondering if that's the best idea. My caution is, I think, probably somewhat warranted. But I also recognize it's a trauma response, of living nearly a year and a half in fear of everyone around me, of wondering if having an imperfectly fitting mask would mean I could die or watching the immense suffering of both the illness and death, and also the utter neglect of our government that sacrificed life to the idol of capitalism. I've ranted about that before on this podcast, so I'll spare you that. But what I'm saying is that even with, quote, reopening, even with most folks in my life being vaccinated, which means we can see people again and hug them, which is doing good things for my spirit. But Even with that, there is still the lingering of the trauma, a collective trauma, which is not going away anytime soon. I wonder if this is why there are so many healing stories in the Gospels. They knew what it was like to live with lingering trauma from illness and Roman violence both. I talked about this on my episode from February 7th, which was about the first healing stories in Mark's gospel and the urgency of those stories and what that urgency had to tell us about the importance of healing. You might want to check that out. It's called The Urgency of Healing, February 7th. And I suggest that because we're back in Mark again, and to be honest, the urgency for healing has not stopped. Here's the story, Mark chapter 5, Verses 21 to 43. When Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered around him, and he was by the sea. Then one of the leaders of the synagogue named Hyrus came, and when he saw him, fell at his feet and begged him repeatedly, My little daughter is at the point of death. And his disciples said to him, Do you see the crowd pressing in on you? How can you say you touched me? He looked all around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling, fell down before him and told him the whole truth. He said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. When they came to the house of the leader of the synagogue, he saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. When he had entered, he said to them, Why do you make a commotion and weep? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. Then he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum, which means, little girl, get up. And immediately the girl got up and began to walk about. She was 12 years of age. At this, they were overcome with amazement. He strictly ordered them that no one should know this, and told them to give her something to eat. So many healings happen in these opening chapters of Mark. From the first one from that February episode to now, Jesus is healing folks over and over again. We finally start seeing him teaching too, but the healing continues. In fact, between last week's story where Jesus and his crew got on the boat for a little rest only for it to storm and scare everyone, Claire did such a beautiful job with that story, Between that and today's reading is the famous healing of the Gerasene demoniac. That's the boat he gets off of in today's story, coming from Gerasa. He's going everywhere, and crowds keep following him, and again, such an urgency, such a need today's reading, these interweaving stories of a distraught father, of a woman who won't stop bleeding, of a young girl near death, of crowds pressing in and around, of these seemingly miraculous healings. What does it mean for us? I want to start, though, by talking a little bit about what this story doesn't mean, because this story is often one used... To paint a negative picture of Judaism in order that progressive Christians can claim Jesus as some kind of feminist hero who heals women from the retrograde exclusivity of Judaism. This is what happens when our power analysis of the gospel is incorrect. When we think these stories are about Jesus versus Judaism, or at best the Pharisees, rather than Jewish communities in resistance against Roman oppression. So the church, progressive or otherwise, has historically made these stories about something else. The church has made the story of this woman, this girl, not about the healing of their bodies, but about things that aren't in the story at all, invented taboos and misunderstood practices around ritual purity. These interpretations say that Jesus broke taboos by touching the hemorrhaging woman, by acknowledging her in public where she was forbidden to be, that he had violated exclusive misogynistic purity laws by healing her. Maybe you've heard the stories told that way. I've certainly heard them, and I think I may have told them that way myself. And here's the deal, those things aren't true. Here is Jewish feminist New Testament scholar Dr. Amy Gillivine, quote, There is no reason why the woman would not be in public. There is no reason why she should not seek Jesus's help. No crowd parts before her with the cry, get away, get away, hemorrhaging woman. No authorities restrict her to her house or require her to proclaim herself unclean, unclean. And finally, Jesus violates no laws concerning any, quote, crippling cultural taboos. For there is no law forbidding the woman to touch him or him to touch her." End quote. And as to ritual purity, we're talking about ritual practices. For ritual matters there were indeed practices in place for women who were menstruating and also who hemorrhaged. Bleeding did not make them dirty, i.e. what we think what we Christians think impurity means. It was more like a recognition of a state in which your attention needed to be elsewhere. Illness, bleeding monthly or otherwise, grief over death, childbirth. Times when our focus, our energy, is elsewhere. We might even say sacred times. The practices were not about exclusion or marginalization, and everyone had to negotiate them, regardless of gender. Now it's true, by restoring the hemorrhaging woman to health, Jesus does restore her to ritual purity, but we notice that isn't even mentioned in the story. Which is to say, that is not the point of the story. If you're getting the idea that the church made up a bunch of anti-Jewish shit and imported it back into the Bible, well, I don't think that you're wrong. Which is not to say that first century Judaism and the Judaism we find in the Bible wasn't patriarchal, because it was just like everyone else around them. The trouble is when we make Judaism exceptional, the antithesis of all the good Christian things, as if Christianity isn't also rife with patriarchy, including in denominations that ordain women but still, still pay women clergy less, just as a starter of a long list. Hmm. So treating the stories like this as some kind of condemnation of Judaism invisibilizes the complexities and even the beauty we can find and learn from, which is right there in the Bible and other texts. Like Jewish women in Jesus' time were involved in his movement and also the broader resistance movements, sometimes to the consternation of their husbands. And Jewish women, Dr. Levine points out, could own their own homes, worship in the temple and synagogues, had use of their own property, had freedom of travel, and appear in public. I'm talking about this because if we're going to talk about healing, healing from the violence white supremacy has caused, then we have to get our power analysis correct here. We have to fight back against the anti-Jewish lies that are told about these sacred stories. I'm talking about this because when we make these stories about what they are not, which is what Christianity has done throughout its history, made the church the triumphal victor over Judaism and every other religion, too, then we obscure, we hide what these stories are actually for. We hide the wisdom here that is going to help us in our own struggles against imperial power. We lose. The opportunity for healing. Courage, sisters. Don't get weary. Here, brother. Courage, brothers. Don't get weary. People. Courage, people. Don't get weary. In my February episode, I talked about the suffering caused by the oppression of the Roman Empire and the impact that suffering would have had on people's mental and physical health. And so we see in Mark's gospel healings that address both. And I think these urgent stories, one after the other after the other, to the point where here in today's text, we can't even finish one story without getting interrupted by another. These urgent stories point to just how much suffering there was and how needed the work of healing was. So much so that just a few verses after today's text, Jesus sends his organizers out to do the same work. In today's text, we see stories that tell us more about this suffering. The woman had been bleeding for years with no help. And the suffering didn't spare children or their families or community leaders. And I think the emphasis on faith and belief here, both of which also mean trust, is not about faith in or belief in Jesus, because the text doesn't actually say that. It says, your faith has made you well. It says, do not fear, only believe. And so I think it means you've trusted in the community to hold you in your suffering, to provide for healing and new life in ways the empire refuses to, refuses to, And that trust, it goes both ways, right? I have to trust community, and also the community has to be trustworthy. So that if I reach out my hand, you'll know that you can trust enough to reach back. I think the stories, they're they're an answer, too, to the same question the disciples had in the boat during last week's storm. Doesn't anybody care about us? That is a legit and heart-wrenching question when you're on the receiving end of imperial violence, when every message from racial capitalism is that it does not care at all. Refuses to care. Refuses to. Doesn't anybody care about us? I see these two healings as both a divine and a communal response to that question. Somebody does care We care Enough to get into boat after boat enough to walk mile after mile Enough to wade through crowds to you enough to hold your hand enough to see you to feel you when you get close enough To make sure you get fed And it's not a new thing Jesus does not really it's what his people have always done when faced with Empire's boot on their necks They provide care for one another, feed one another, build safety and community together regardless of what empire does. They do their best to build up a new world, not based on the empire's rules, but on love and justice and true accountability, where everyone is safe and thrives and is cherished. Where life is precious, abolitionist Ruthie Wilson Gilmore says, life is precious. Where life is precious, life is precious. That's what's happening in these stories. The community coming together to say life is precious. That is powerful healing, urgent, necessary healing not only of bodies, but entire communities. May we do our part, and may we trust enough to let ourselves be healed. learned so much from our Jewish siblings in the movement about what true safety and being able to trust community mean. It means in part we need to know we have each other's backs. For Christians, we have not only not done a good job of this, but also the Christian roots of anti-Semitism that still show up today and which animate white supremacy, like I talked about with today's text, means that we have actively created a world where Jewish folks aren't safe. So for today's episode, my call to action is to do our part as white Christians to heal that, to do our part to build a safe world for everyone. One way to do that is, of course, by participating in our Community Safety for All campaign. One of the things that we point out in the toolkit is that when congregations get trained in things like de-escalation and community defense, then we can also show up for one another, not only for ourselves. As in, for example, a Christian congregation can provide a safety team for a Jewish congregation rather than everyone relying on police who ultimately do not keep us safe. A second action is to support the Freedom to Thrive campaign being led by Jews for racial and economic justice in New York City. And y'all, this is some amazing work. Here's what they say. Our vision and the vision of the partners we work with all across New York is a city where communities have everything they need to prosper and thrive. We're empowered to define safety for ourselves. And right-wing police unions don't set the agenda and starve the city for resources. Now that is some amazing healing work. So you can read more about that links in the transcript um, and also on our social media and send them some money to help them do their work. Links for that again in the transcript, all of these actions in the transcript and on our social media. Thanks as always for joining us from wherever you are on this good earth. We'd love to hear from you all by commenting on our SoundCloud or Twitter or Facebook pages or by filling out the listener survey on our podcast page at surge.org. And we'd love to hear from you about how we're doing, especially from folks of color and non-Christian folks who may be checking us out. Next week, we'll have a resistance word from Nicola Torbett. And after that, oh my gosh, it will be our 200th episode. We've got something special planned, so stay tuned. You can find out more about Surge at surge.org, and our podcast lives on SoundCloud. Search on the word is resistance. Give us a like or rate us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to our podcast. Transcripts are available on our website, which include references, resources, and action links. And finally, a huge thanks as always to our sound editor, Max Pearl. Blessings to you in all that you do to, in- to resist injustice and in all that you do to build up a new world. Love and liberation, beloved. Love and liberation. Until next time, I'm Reverend Ann Dunlop.